This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, Oscar-winning production designers David Waskow and Sandy Waskow, as we explore their careers working on such films as La La Land, which won them the Oscars for production design this year, as well as Wes Anderson on films such as Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and The Royal Tannenbaums, Quentin Tarantino on Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Jackie Brown, and their new film Molly's Game, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and starring Jessica Chastain. We'll delve into the role a production designer plays in making a film, the collaboration between a production designer and director, as well as the other members of the crew. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, Instagram at Jog Road Productions, like our Jog Road Productions Facebook page. Don't forget to subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube to watch some of our video interviews with Don Cheadle, Ewan McGregor, Greta Gerwig, and many more. You can subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for the latest episode downloaded every week. And don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes Apple Podcast page for the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join Oscar-winning production designers David Waskow and Sandy Waskow as we explore some of their amazing films, including La La Land, The Royal Tannenbaums, Pulp Fiction, and many more. I thought we could start off by talking a little bit about what your process is going into a movie. You're, you're hired, you know, you're coming in, you know what the screenplay is. What's that first step you take? Well, um, first of all... Uh... I'm David Wasco, and and we have Sandy Wasco here. We work as a team together, and we are basically designers for movies. And what we what we do is uh, we're hired to help create the look of of a movie. And the the blueprint that we work with is a screenplay or a script. And um, our career has sort of been built on script driven movies that we carefully search out and, um, and end up then connecting with directors and sometimes then do a, a string of projects that are with the same director. But what, we, what we're in charge of is, is, is helping figure out what the, what the movie looks like and it involves everything from picking locations to uh, working with the camera department or working with the uh, um, costume designer Essentially, uh, everything that the camera films have to, has to be procured, thought about, uh, pulled together, and uh, and then set up. And it's usually a mix of practical locations and then sets that are built on a soundstage. So um, what we're usually the first people that are hired. It, uh, we're we're really considered a below the line craft department. Um, and it's usually a locations department which which would work together with us, and it's usually really just uh, us with the director. And we're sent we we uh, meet with the director and we discuss what what they want to do with their with their story. And often, and we've been very lucky to work with. A director that is usually a writer director, so they're usually the the people that it's it's their it's their words. They wrote the story, and then they're going to direct it. And that was the case with our most recent movie, which is Molly's Game. It's written by Aaron Sorkin. This is first time he's directing. Um, uh, we work with uh, Damien Chazelle on La La Land, and he wrote that screenplay. Uh, we've worked with Martin Madonna, who is a big UK playwright, and he directed In Bruges, and then we did his first US movie called Seven Psychopaths. Um, and uh, pretty much right down the line, Rampart, which was Oren Mulverman, he's a great writer, director. Quentin Tarantino, we've done virtually all of his movies up to Django. Django and uh, Hateful Eight were done, uh, we were not, we did not do, but we've done every movie that he's directed from Reservoir Dogs. You want to hide this, or I don't no. know what you're doing. Uh, uh, Dave Mamet, Red Belt. So in any event... Um, uh, it's also interesting, you've worked on the first films of directors. So it was Bottle Rocket, that was Wes Anderson's mm-hmm. very first film, uh, Reservoir Dogs, 
Quentin Tarantino's very first film. What is the experience of working with a first-time director versus someone who's well, had more of that experience? It's a great thing over a career, too, to have worked with young directors at the beginning of our career so that we were all sort of learning together. We had good back, we had backgrounds in film, uh, more in design than film, um, but then getting the chance to start when they were going, learning the process as well as we were, it was a great collaborative effort to move forward with them. And that the beginning, working with, the first thing we do as a design team is break down that script. So to have the director, the actual writer and director there to speak with us directly about every bit of dialogue and every bit of action in the script is unbelievably helpful. With uh, Wes Anderson, who is known so much for his visual design, you were there from the very beginning. So what were some of the ideas that he had that you were able to sort of mesh together and uh, make your own in a sense? Well, I think, I think in, in, in terms of working with, with Wes, uh, we had the first three of his movies, starting with Bottle Rocket, then Rushmore, and then Royal Tannenbaum. So I, I think we we were instrumental in helping him find his voice, or if that's a visual voice, if if that's a way to describe it. He 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 then uh, continued with doing these very uh, specific, visually thought out projects that uh, I feel are almost stronger visually than they are. Uh, story-wise. I think that, that, that when we had West for Bottle Rocket, they, they ended up uh, doing a 10-minute short that went to Sundance and I guess caught the, uh, caught the eye of Jim Brooks uh, and Polly Platt, producers, and they're the ones that then uh, uh, jump-started it to become a feature film. So um, we met Wes. Wes, was, Wes and Owen came on the set of Pulp Fiction while we were working with Quentin as guests of Quentin and they uh, they asked me at the time if I was interested in doing um, doing a movie with them and we said sure let's read the script and we, we love the script so um, it that was... script too took place in a town that Wes knew really well <clears throat> so early on he showed us pictures of some locations that he had chosen already or were inspiration to him when he was thinking about places that these great characters would run around and do their uh, action in. And that informed us a little bit as to what we were going to be doing for design because they would, the colors were very strong, the uh, design elements in a place, say a, even a diner, something very simple. The graphics were interesting. The stuffed fish on the wall was interesting. So we had a real, we could take a lot of information from that and then mix it, of course, with the humor and the story. And having looked at the short that he delivered to Sundance, there was a lot of information there for us to pull from. He also wanted it to look a little bit like the French New Wave. So he wanted us to limit the color palette to these sort of reds, blacks, and you know minimal colors. Yeah. Turned out to be brighter. There was lots of yellows and blues and things like that. But so those were sort of the beginnings. And then as we went into the other stories, the later films, Rushmore, Rushmore, there were he, West did wonderful drawings, kind of stick figure drawings yeah, of his of like his storyboards. storyboards, and they were really informative because he. When, when items that might maybe he drew or suggested in the script were actually finally developed when we were purchasing or building them and run by them, they would be carefully looked at and carefully um, commented on by Wes. But so the, pro the process started really early with his drawings and his script and then would proceed right through film. Well, each, each three movie uh, uh, from Bottle Rock to Rushmore to Royal Tannenbaum's became increasingly more uh, visually controlled and, and minutia. Uh, there was nothing that was not thought, thought about uh, from very small prop items to big room environments to the, to the vehicles. Uh, and then ending up uh, with Royal Tannenbaum's, which was 
taking kind of an off-kilter look at New York City. We shot it all in New York City, but we uh, it was kind of an otherworldly New York. We changed the design of the street signs, the license plates were original design. He, he kind of masked the fact that we were in New York, but we were in New York. And um, we it shot was, it. was uh, fascinating seeing the, uh, the apartment or the home that they live in. Yeah. Because I believe that was actually a real home that was built That was out. a real house. It was yeah. in Harlem. And um, that was uh, kind of a, a used as a practical location where we filmed on every floor uh, of the house and including the rooftop where we created a falcon nest for the, for the uh, Richie Tannenbaum. Uh, so it was, um, uh, it was a derelict house that we had to kind of make safe for filming and then we painted everything and, uh, and then we used a few other, uh, locations in the neighborhood that functioned as, uh, other rooms. There was a ballroom in the house that was in a different building, um, there was a backyard that was kind of a Japanese garden that was uh, the neighbor's house. So we, we really kind of took over the community and shot up there. We were really, I don't think, I know there was nothing else going on at the time. I think uh, President Clinton was just uh, getting an office up there. So Harlem wasn't the big thing that it is now, the, the, the you know, uh, place to go. Um, and uh, we, it was a, uh, an interesting building designed by this uh, Dutch architect, Adolf Hoek, H-O-K, uh, but... Um, um, yeah, they, they compared to Bottle Rocket that was a little more grounded in reality, uh, they the stories progressively developed these sort of West worlds that are these Magical. wonderful Magical. places that are sort of like you kind of think well, New York, New York, you kind of know it's New York. And then later with Budapest, the title, we didn't work on that, but the it suggests a place, but it still is a magical version of these worlds as he's speaking about, right. writing about. And the, the detail, with the oh, wardrobe, the, the, mm -hmm. the sets, everything is yep. very, very specific to each character. So yes. you're almost like, even within this uh, fantastic world, it's even more specific yes. delving into each individual character in a way. Yeah, that was wonderful. That was wonderful to do for... Yeah, and in a way, Rush. in a way, catching these directors like a Wes or like Quentin early on, um, and I guess the sort of size budget of the movies, they were sort of left to do their own thing, uh, which is which allowed us to sort of really uh, uh, find and shape the, their their vision. And it was the same with Reservoir Dogs with with Quentin. They weren't big studio movies, uh, although even in the case with Bottle Rocket, it was a studio movie, but it was still a, a kind of a micro-budget studio movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and although Jim Brooks was um, the producer, he was not hands-on. He actually had um, uh, Polly Platt, who is a uh, mentor of ours. She's a production designer that did uh, a lot of the... Larry McMurtry movies like Last Picture Show, um, Pretty Baby. She's an immensely talented uh, production designer that was married to Peter Bogdanovich. And she was the producer, and I was a little intimidated about working with her, but she really let, she really just let us do our thing. And um, we were able to talk about stuff, but it became a very relaxed environment to work. Um, and she, again, protected Wes. And I'd have to say the same about Quentin. Um, he, he was really, even though he was unknown for Reservoir Dogs, they, we really just protected and carried out his, 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 his script and his words and let him uh, steer, the, steer the show. Looking at Pulp Fiction, which is a big transition from Reservoir Dogs, mm -hmm. many more sets, many more characters, very sprawling. Uh, how much of that was in the script versus what you had to go out and uh, independently design? Yeah. Well, with with Pulp Fiction, pretty much pretty much everything that that you see in the finished movie is what Quentin writes, 
and we really stick with the words and I know that that's the case with a lot of the writer directors is that that's the one thing that you do not change is their words their their rhythm of words um, their their the the blocking that is sort of creates the uh, created by the words and the and the amount of dialogue that has to happen in a room or in a hallway or whatever but um, uh, uh, Pulp Fiction was Again, Reservoir Dogs was a was a relatively big indie hit, and then there was the thought, okay, what's Quentin going to do next, and can he top that? And then this comes, and it kind of explodes on the market and becomes this. Um, it was really kind of a groundbreaking indie movie uh, that that hit a lot of firsts. I think it was the first to make so much money. But uh, we we. Um, uh, uh, would have the script, which is the blueprint, and for instance, um, Jack Rabbit Slims, which was this fic fictional nightclub. There's there's a like a paragraph description of the club, uh, but then Quentin would give us a few um, movie references that he wanted us to look at. He wanted us to look at uh, Howard Hawks's Red Line Seven Thousand, which I think is James Caan's first movie. And he said, "There's a there's a uh, a racing a race car drivers club in this movie. He wanted us to look at that, and then he wanted us to look at Elvis Presley's Speedway, which had another uh, club that um, they hung out at that had uh, like a slot car track. So we were able to lift some ideas from these movies and then put them into the club. Well, we kind of watched the movies and then kind of did." Did it ramped it way up? I mean, we took a lot of Los Angeles icons, the old drive-in architecture of the the Googie uh, design designs at the time, and did that big sort of cantilevered roof structure that goes out over the dance floor. And then we had Earl just been out to um, we'd been inspired a lot by the architecture out in San uh, in Palm Springs. A lot of the Albert Frey. yeah the yeah, we had we had worked on uh, in between Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. We ended up working on another production designer, architect uh, Craig Hodgetts, was working on this uh, museum exhibit down at MoCA downtown in Japantown. It's called the Case Study House exhibit, and he hired us because it involved building three full-size uh, mid-century case study houses that were kind of groundbreaking in Southern California post Second World War and then we we orchestrated building them inside the museum and then we functioned as decorators to dress the houses uh, per the period when when they were built so we kind of had this vernacular in our mind we were we were fresh off of working on um, this kind of mid-century world that we um, uh, uh, had a lot of fun with and then we jumped right into Pulp Fiction so we had that in our mind and that kind of kind of drove the the design for the Jackrabbit Slims and Quentin did specifically say he, he wanted us to be frugal with a lot of the other sets and then to kind of put our budget and, and focus into doing this nightclub set so I guess then after the movie came out it became a rather big thing where um, tourists were coming to Los Angeles and inquiring where where this restaurant was because they wanted to visit it. So much so that uh, Disney, which which was the parent company, had contacted us and asked if we could help do a Jackrabbit Slim set for the Disney Orlando. Uh, it never materialized or never happened, but it became a big thing. So it is funny how when you do something in a movie and it becomes such a big um, thing in real world. Well, that's interesting because now with La La Land, there's actually a tour you can take to visit yes. all of the La La Land locations. Sure it's a yeah. tour you can actually look at and you can go on to the studio back lot. Uh, it's great we, over at the studio. We, we were there uh, when the tour went through the studio back lot. And of course, all the kids <laughs> get off the bus and start dancing. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Um, but when, when a movie strikes a note, and it's, it's funny because I still feel that what our job is, is, you know, I, I kind of still try to remain background. And I look at my job as, as 
helping the director and the actors do their job so that they can do their job well and to provide them with whether it be a, a prop in their hand or uh, a, a specific car uh, that they're driving or um, a room or an office or a house that they're in. It's kind of just do it so that it it doesn't uh, overshadow the the script which or the director's work or the actor's work. You're just helping them do their job. So um, in a case, for instance, with um, La La Land, when it becomes a recognized thing, it's really quite wonderful. But traditionally, I really like to remain background. And it, it, it is a collaboration where you have all of these different craft people that are assembled together. And it's a rather large group of people to do even a small budget movie but you have you know the camera department, the costume department, the prop department, the casting department, the actors. The, there's so many people, and when it all um, gels and works, it, it is it is magic. And it, it's a funny thing because making movies hasn't changed really that much from the early days of when movie making first started. Of course, there have, there's there there are these tools that we now have that are are essentially tools that help you you, you know, uh, that help, but it's still an old fashioned craft where, you know, we go into these studios and things that are really old fashioned. And I mean, where we did, um, like the back lot at, at Warner Brothers, where we did La La Land, it's really old fashioned and, and wonderful. Um, and uh, when all of this kind of works together and, and, and it works, it's like when you're baking, uh, a, a cake or something and it comes out fantastic it, it 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 is magical and it is quite wonderful but there's no real there's i don't think there's any real rhyme or reason to you know this is the formula to make a successful la la land it's it's so hard it i do have to say that to have a damien chazelle is 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 really the key, the key thing and we had that with quentin he's he's the real deal um, Wes is also these are these are really well. There's scripts smart with people. great characters. Yeah, scripts with great characters, and they found great actors in all of them too. It was really. But it's it's um, it's it is very interesting. It is it's still it is still an old fashioned craft. Mm -hmm. What is the difference for you between working? and developing a set on a soundstage from scratch versus going into a real location and molding that to what you need it to be? I, I still prefer to work in practical locations and uh, regardless of the budget and even uh, and approach it that way where we try to find a location practical first, meaning it's a real building or a real house or whatever and if that then becomes limiting where if there are too many pages of dialogue or the crew with even on a small budget movie if if the crew is hampered by being out in the elements at a practical location then I, then we offer to build it as a set to make it a um, an easier to uh, easier for the film to function. Essentially what you're doing is you're giving the director more time to be with the actors. I'll give as an example um, the movie that's coming out uh, in a few weeks, Molly's Game, which is Aaron Sorkin. It's very straightforward. It's really not an art direction movie, but it's a movie based on a book uh, on a real person that took place in Los Angeles and New York City. And for budgetary reasons, we were sent to Toronto to do the entire movie in Toronto. So um, uh, it was art department's job to then find things that looked like they were houses that were in West Hollywood or uh, the interior of a club that was on Sunset Strip. Or then when the movie moves to New York City, Manhattan, uh, we needed a federal courtroom uh, where uh, it becomes essentially a court uh, many, many pages in a, in a, in a, a big, uh, intimidating courtroom. Uh, we ended up um, finding the courtrooms to shoot uh, 
this portion of Molly's game, the Sorkin movie, but they were they were either too small or we had access on a weekend and we couldn't we'd have to break up the scenes. So we ended up building the the courtroom. Uh, so in the movie, you don't you don't even say, oh my gosh, this is a really big set that the art department did. You don't know it. It just is like they go into this federal courtroom and that it's where the the later part of the movie takes place. So we provided that as a place to help Aaron direct the movie and the actors do their thing so that they didn't get to these emotional scenes where they do, they're doing their job and then they have to cut and take and then we have to go to another location to do something else and then come back to this location. So that's, I, I still, I think there's a, a, a degree of, um, of reality that I like to have in a movie, like some of my favorite movies are just practical locations, like like the, uh, in theaters now, we did not do the Florida Project and it's practical locations. And I think that that the that's quite wonderful. I, I respect and, and like when art departments have to do these uh, completely created magical worlds, like some of the, um, uh, uh, fantastical movies like the remake of Blade Runner, which is quite wonderful. Um, uh, and that's really not any practical locations. It's I, all... I think two places that we really spent a long time looking for the locations and eventually built them were in Kill Bill, Bill's Hacienda, which could have been a Spanish... We looked at a lot of large Spanish houses in the desert here and then in Mexico. And then the theater that had to burn, the French theater in Inglorious Bastards, we really exhausted reality, which was kind of silly in the end because having to burn it down was kind of something. Well, we, we, yeah, we, we uh, just to. And uh, then later we built all these things. Yeah, but we did to, look for practical locations. Yeah, for to all add those. to Sandy's point about uh, Inglorious Bastards, we, having done a string of projects with Quentin, and sort of knowing how he liked working in practical locations. He actually did like practical locations, and um, and we approached Inglorious Bastards, which had a very, very short prep period, 10 weeks from the minute that we were sent to Berlin to day one of filming. We found most everything practical, including the opening scene French farmhouse. We found fantastic locations, and... Um, and when Quentin arrived after us presenting these practical locations, he just had kind of an interest in, in um, taking advantage of Bobblesburg Studio, which was this wonderful old uh, studio that was um, created as a propaganda studio, I guess, um, prior to the Second World War. I think even prior to needing it for propaganda. Yeah, it was, it was a very old, old uh, yeah. studio in Potsdam, Germany. So he wanted to build certain things. So we did, uh, we also had, uh, and an answer to, to, to your question, uh, uh, if, if there's mechanics of a set that, that, that like fire, where you have to do, say, be, most concerned with safety, then then that has to be built as a set. And we actually found the theater, which would have been a several theaters for Inglorious Bastards, but because there had to be so much fire and then an explosion where the marquee had to explode and all of this, it it, it made sense to make it practical. So oh yeah, and make it a set. So we built we built that all as a set. And sometimes you have to go through all these steps just to reassure the company that you're not wasting yeah, but their money. I, I'm a big safety guy too as far as um, uh, our job is is so um, as I said before there's so many people involved and there's so much going on that sometimes there are accidents where um, where whether it be an actor or or a crew person uh, somebody gets hurt and and Often it's it's something that's related to something that the art department is either built or created or, or did. So it's something that has to be built into how we're figuring things out. Is is safety, is crew safety, and you know I'm just using fire as one example. But it, we had we had big scenes with fire in um, 
in the uh, auditorium where we had hundreds of people, uh, actors and stunt people that were just surrounded by fire and nobody was hurt. And it was it, because mm -hmm. it, we planned it out and we're very careful with it. Yeah. Well, also too, with uh, destroying a set for a scene like that, you <laughs> probably can only do it once. So yeah. and you take got, all this time building it yeah, and it then built, it's yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah, for three burns, it was like double, double sheetrock. So you can get three burns, and then after uh, each burn compromises even sheetrock, which is plaster, and uh, that's compromised more and more, and then it gets to a point where it becomes too dangerous, where the walls can topple over. Yeah. And the chairs are rebuilt, and it was just an odd small thing, but it's impossible to find velvet curtains or velvet in that yardage that wasn't fire-treated. And it burns badly. If something's fire treated, it sort of drips and it doesn't go up in flames. Yeah. So to get it to get the it milled so that it was untreated prior to our using it, so that it would actually burn up to the ceiling and cause this yeah, a, effect. A big, was a big uh, a trend step. now in what we do is interfacing uh, visual effects with the art department, and often it's it's sort of almost like one department now. Uh, I, I, again, sort of like to focus on scripts that are more, more reality-based and less, um, less magical. And even, even the magic that happened in La La Land was sort of low-tech. And the magic that happened in the Wes Anderson movies was very low-tech, uh, analog almost. But um, a lot of the new movies or the bigger budget things that um, that uh, uh, I'm mentioning are, are interfacing with what we do, art direction and visual effects to help um, uh, to help tell the story. Mm -hmm. When you think about uh, La La Land, for example, the opening scene with the yeah. cars and the yeah. big dance number, yeah. and I believe there was only a very short amount of time that could be filmed. Two days. It was yeah. That was that was again uh, analog. It was we we uh, uh, we actually had control over the transition ramp from the 105 to the 110, which was 100 feet in the air, and we had uh, rehearsed the scene. Uh, we had a, a, a kind of a very low tech studio environment that was just in warehouses in uh, the, uh, the little town of Atwater, where our production office and then our um, construction was. But we were able to rehearse putting the autos in kind of an arc that resembled the arc of the, of the on-ramp. Uh, and um, uh, the rehearsals then helped. And then we had a, a prior weekend where we were able to actually stage the vehicles on the, the on-ramp. We own the on-ramp. Um, and do a rehearsal and then when we came back the following weekend uh, we were able to do it and it was uh, it looked like one continuous camera move but I believe that there were three cuts in it but um, it was still the 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 real world things that made it difficult were it was a very very hot day I think it was over 100 degrees and the uh, safety which I'll bring up again my concerns were that there was a very low parapet wall uh, on either side of the of the uh, elevated ramp, and you had all of these actors and dancers that could easily um, back up and fall off, and it was a sheer hundred foot drop right down to uh, concrete. Were any of the dancers on wires? Nobody was on wires. Everybody was completely. Uh, they were. They were all. For the most part, real act, real dancers. So they really knew mm -hmm. what they were doing. And um, again, what we did, and I, as I, I'm repeating myself in, in saying that we will provide things to help the actors do their thing, where we uh, we procured all the cars. We were able to reinforce the roofs of the cars because there was a lot of jumping on the tops of the cars. Then we created uh, these uh, kind of steps that allowed the actors to. It looked like they just hopped over the uh, the uh, the waist high medium. divider medium yeah. or whatever you want to call that. Uh, so there were little things, and then we changed the 
the the the striping on the uh, the white striping on the on the ground but for the most part it was really just a, an on ramp and we didn't really do and mm -hmm. we didn't change it in any other way so the, the so it was really the dancing and the camera work that did the that did the magic there yeah. and and the the only CGI I think in um, we did do because we had a dance number in the Griffith Park Observatory the uh, um, the planetarium has been modernized, so Damien wanted us to kind of make it, bring it back to how it looked when it was used in um, Rebel Without a Cause. It was a much more deco design. So we built that as a set also to allow them to do wire work where they were able to lift the actors and have them float up into the into the air. So we built a full-size planetarium. Wow, that's interesting. That the whole interior of the planetarium was built. That was all wow. built. And then... Uh, Not the, the entrance where they passed the Tesla and dance. Oh, just where the yeah. uh, the, phys the actual inside. Just when they go into the... Enter right. into where it's, a, where it's the projected star ah. backdrop. Yeah. So so we were, we were kindly allowed to go into the... Um, the Griffith Park Observatory and the and the initial the foyer where they did their dance that was all a practical location mm -hmm. um, that we were we were asked to not really touch anything we brought some lighting we brought a few elements but for the most part um, the Tesla coil all of that was practical and then when they enter into the planetarium that was then a built set that went up about 12 feet in height and then after after the top of that set. Uh, became a green screen that allowed them to put sort of a starry, uh, starry backdrop. Mm. The uh, the finale of the movie is absolutely spectacular. And uh, yeah. reading certain interviews with Damien Chazelle, mm -hmm. he talked about the influence of a lot of the 1950s musicals and also mm -hmm. uh, umbrellas of Schubert. Uh, yeah. How did that play into designing that finale? It, I would have to say that that really La La Land was so heavily and carefully thought out with Damien. Um, and we had, we had a bit more, it was a short prep, but then there were a few things that happened in production that um, delayed our principal photography. So we were able to keep, keep designing and keep designing with Damien. And he cared so much about the look of the movie that he actually, felt more comfortable, as I said, we had our production offices and construction and costume department were all in this cluster of warehouses in Atwater Village. He, he wanted his office or his desk to be in the art department. So he was spent more time with the art department than any other department. Uh, and then when the cameraman, Lena Sandgren, came on, um, we would have these meetings with costume department, Mary Zolfries, uh, Lena Sangren and Damien and uh, within the art department and we would really just talk about everything and we he had um, I, I would say our our biggest influence was the Jacques Demy uh, movies which were the these very primary colored French movies that were done in the 60s and um, they were mostly practical locations but they, what they did was the design department painted a lot of things these very bright vibrant uh, primary colors and then they mixed in some built sets but for the most part they were really out in the real world and we really took that as our cue and that's what we did with 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 this movie we really we painted big areas the, the Warner Brothers backlot we painted the entire street we did we created the coffee shop um, we that was all built beside behind a, a, a little facade but we we planned and schemed everything with Damien everything we built models it was all thought out and the end grand finale was sort of this real um, it was really analog low-tech it was very almost theater sets that we built that were just hand-painted backdrops and um, the crossover again with us is that um, uh, some of the paintings that were done, everything was all original, it was all done uh, original paintings, but some of the sort of um, uh, morphing of, of L.A. Uh, iconic landmarks 
which he wanted to showcase in the grand finale. Uh, I had a concept illustrator, Carl Sprague, who um, actually worked, he was our, the art director with us on Royal Tannenbaum. So we have, so it's this very small world that's all meshed together between the Wes Anderson movies and um, and we we took a lot of, of those that sensibility and unfolded it into into making La La Land, and then we come up with um, this wonderful gem gem of a movie. It wasn't a, a, an expensively it wasn't a big budget movie, um, but it was one of these things where when you have somebody like Damien that really has in his mind what he's trying to do, and he directs all these different departments. And you end up with this wonderful thing, and it's a it's a it's a great thing. So I, you know, people often ask me, well, what is your favorite movie? And I always say, well, it's the most recent movie that I've worked on because you take these years of doing movie after movie after movie, and you take all these ideas and all these things that you've learned and all these tricks, if you want to call them, uh, and you put it into the most recent thing, whether it's. Like I said, Molly's Game, which I haven't even seen yet. It's a, I'm, we're to see it tomorrow night. But, um, you know, it's really not a design movie. But you take all these ideas and tricks and things and you, you put, put it into making it um, this world. Whether it, and, and Molly's Game is, a, uh, is a, essentially a mockumentary or it's a documentary about a real world person that did these fantastical things. La La Land was a fictional movie. It's about these fictional uh, uh, characters that are in this magical take on LA. I would liken that to um, Royal Tannenbaum's, which was a magical take on New York. It was not quite, it was New York, but it was not quite New York. And that's what Damien wanted to do with, with La La Land. He had all these great ideas from early on, but, but um, one of the things that we how I like to work is you you keep the ideas coming and you keep um, you keep uh, an open mind about a better idea or a better way to do something right up to right up until you're filming it and even while you're filming it you might get another idea and say hey well what if we did it this way and then you do, you do it that way and so you you don't limit the director. Uh, some directors that we work with actually don't like storyboards because it locks them into a certain way of doing something. I know early on, uh, Quentin never liked storyboards because it, it was like, well, this is how you're going to have to do it. And he didn't want that limitation. So um, the point that I'm saying about the success of La La Land is that we kept an open mind about really great ideas and we kept these ideas uh, bubbling up throughout the prep and throughout while we were making the movie. It, it helped to have a phenomenal director of photography that was also, everybody was, uh, had that same um, sensibility or uh, uh, way of thinking where we were just open-minded about good ideas. But a lot of the ideas did come from uh, Damien. How important is it to collaborate as production designers with a cinematographer, with wardrobe, with the other departments? Because there must be a, a sense of how is the set going to be photographed and how will that translate in the end? Well, um, it's because it's a big collaboration. Making a movie is a big collaboration. I liken it to uh, real world architecture where you're building a skyscraper it takes thousands of people to build a skyscraper and essentially you're building you're building a skyscraper when you're making a movie so it's our job to kind of filter these ideas that come from the director and filter it to um, all these other departments whether it be the costume department the camera department um, the prop department so that everybody knows what the director would like to do. It helps when everybody is in, um, is in an environment where you're close by and can communicate but um, and that's where a lot of um, the, the contemporary tools that have become with, with just emailing and I mean our early movies were made when, when we didn't have, there were no cell phones and there were no we, we, you know we had pagers and and uh, uh, so all of these tools and, and being able to you can get your ideas quicker and yeah you yeah. can get ideas you can communicate 
So it is, it is communicating all of that uh, so that um, when you get, you know, these hundreds of dancers and everybody all in this one place, you got to figure, you know, you're still, it's a business and you still have to complete what you have to do in one day or two days and then move on to something else. And it, it, to, to, it's our job to make sure that we're, we're, we're communicating that. So, so sometimes talking over uh, a little white foam core model, like, like the finale, we actually built these small scale models that were able to sit on a conference table and we're able to look at everything and say, okay, this is where we would start. And, and the set then um, uh, stretched and grew and shrunk in different areas and things moved depending on how, where he wanted um, the characters to be at different points of their, of the dialogue and the, and the, and the music. So, um, so, uh, uh, and then even when we had the set built, we kept things loose and flexible. Things were hanging on wires. We had like a little orange grove that were little cut out uh, orange grove trees. Everything was movable. It was able to kind of move around and, and adjust so that it, it, it made it, um, it didn't lock Damien into something that would not allow him to do what he, uh, what he wanted in his mind. Uh, have you ever had issues where you design a set, you build it, and then you test it to photograph it, but it doesn't translate necessarily when it's photographed versus how it is uh, sort of built practically in a way? Um, uh, hmm. I don't know. Um, I mean, Luckily, that would not, not so happen. Much. It wouldn't happen if there's so much communication um, between everybody. It happened a little bit in Fifty Shades because the producers wanted it really gray. <laughs> and the director and I had a lot more color in certain things than they want. But that's the only time I can remember. And yeah, that wasn't that really, was, it didn't work on that, film. It was just a discussion that didn't yeah, work. Yeah. But otherwise, not so much because you're right. It is... There's a lot to talk about. It's lucky, you know, now we find that the DP's time is always shorter and shorter, which is awful, because to have the time with them is so important, because they have so much to do with with the lighting and the colors and the, yeah, and what kind of, like, what kind of light, lighting fixtures we're going to use and what kind of transparent fabrics you want to use and... Yeah, everything is sort of speeded up now and... and uh, lots of discussions. And there's a... There's, there's, uh, uh, now, usually a limitation of the amount of time that they will hire an art department on to prep. And like Sandy was saying, often a director of photography will come fresh off of another movie and come in just a few weeks prior to, um, to shooting. But with the case with, say, La La Land, we did have Linus for a fair amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, with Seven Psychopaths, um, working with the same... Uh, with Ben Davis, who was the cameraman, he came in right before um, filming. And I guess this is an answer to your question, Jeffrey, is the, in Seven Psychopaths, which I don't think anybody has seen, but uh, we, had, we had a house for a character and we had everything figured out and it blocked out. And, um, and then the director of photography came in kind of late in the game. And he said, you know, guys, I, this is, it was a house in Silver Lake. It was on a super steep hillside. Uh, he, he couldn't light it from the hillside, didn't provide him with any kind of a, a base where he can have lights from outside. So we ended up having to find a different location. So it's, but it's all like, you know, you just, you just roll with it and keep, 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 you know, uh, keep open-minded about, about things. Often also, um, there are things that are maybe out of everybody's hands, like in Jackie Brown, which I, I, I think is a wonderful Quentin movie, mostly all practical locations, pretty much, uh, is we had this, and that was a lot of locations because Quentin grew up in the South Bay, in uh, uh, kind of near the airport in Los Angeles, and he had these places in mind. So it was an Elmore Leonard story that was transposed from Florida. It was called Rum Punch. Transposed it from Florida, and we moved it to Los Angeles. So he wanted to use the South Bay. But we had a fantastic 
uh, uh, bar slash nightclub. It was in the real world called the Cockatoo Inn. I think it was, we left that same name. Uh, and it was this closed uh, uh, bar, motel, hotel that was from the 40s, I guess. And it was um, in ownership limbo with uh, a company in China. And it was very complicated, but we had, we had the location and he was excited about it because it was part of his childhood that his mom used to take him there. And then we lost the location. So this was one thing where we had something and then for, for uh, uh, reasons that were out of everybody's hands, I don't remember exactly why we lost it. And we had to search for other similar interesting locations. And then it came back to us and we ended up using it in the movie. But it's these things where you just have to roll with everything. It's when, when you're making a movie, it's very, everything has to happen in such a short period of time. That's why things cost so much money is that, um, uh, and then there are these unforeseen um, uh, hassles that happen that are maybe real world hassles that, that when you're trying to be frugal and doing things low budget that um, you just have to kind of roll with. Do you remember uh, sort of the very first projects that you both worked on and sort of how your confidence grew over the years? Um, well, we, we, um, we did most all of our, my things have, were working in consort together with Sandy as a set decorator. And that's really the main other person in the art department is a set decorator and a production designer. And well, I think in the early, early ones, I mean, you did El Norte before I was working with you. Yeah. And in the early ones, of course, they weren't union. So it was a whole different thing. Yeah, it was easier and to do. So we, you, the big difference is we did everything. I mean, yeah. you painted, you built props, yeah, you... There was really no one to yeah. delegate I think to. Going, yeah, going back, right. going back uh, each generation, you end up with these smaller art departments that I don't even know how, how prior to me being in this business, how some of these art departments work with so few people. Like, I think some of the early things that I mentioned before, Polly Platt, who is a mentor designer, she did things with very few people, and I don't know how they did it, because it's just... Um, yeah, I was it's, reading about uh, the last picture show. I think she did wardrobe yeah, and the everything. sets and everything. every detail. Amazing. What's Amazing. great about that is you learn everything, which is terrific. Yeah. But, and but, because you're more on set a lot, you're learning about the problems that the director and the director of photography um, rely on the art department to solve on these early things. Like, But, uh, but the other thing I'll say is that early on in our career... Um, Right around the time that we were married, I, I, I did do a few things that were uh, just on my own without Sandy, but then Sandy started to do set decorating and actually had some pretty interesting projects that she did independent of me, like um, she worked on an early Curtis Hansen movie called Hand That Rocked the Cradle, which was a pretty good Curtis Hansen who did LA Confidential. But that took her to uh, Tacoma, Washington for almost a half year. And uh, although I went up and visited a few times, I, we didn't like um, being apart. So we thought, why don't we just, uh, uh, not only are, are we more effective as a team together because we know what each other is thinking that you can sort of make a better uh, do a better job with the two of us thinking about these things together and, and almost where we bring it home and where it's not like you're you punch the clock and it's a nine-to-five job which the movie business is not but we still will take something home and we'll be talking about things while we're at home eating dinner or something so it was like well let's let's try working on these things together so um, actually uh, it's almost like uh, well, you, yeah, Sandy, Sandy did do uh, really early on a bunch of these things where you were, you were working on uh, the wash. Yeah. And so with, with, with the projects growing in scope, I mean, thank goodness you finally do have a team and do have players yeah. supporting you. So, yeah. 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 yeah it, it, um, uh, 
It's, it is interesting because thinking about um, yet another writer-director project, El Norte, which I was very lu lucky to work on. I, I must say I've been so lucky to work with some incredible writers, but um, that was really seat of the pants um, uh, uh, independent filmmaking uh, where um, I think even filming all around Los Angeles, a lot of the locations were just were just stolen. They were not they were not paid for. Um, yeah, and I think beginning any beginning art directors listening to this or or decorators know that your first two projects. I mean, you're taking furniture out of your own house. You're loaning your friend's car. I mean, it's everything is <laughs> seat of the pants at the beginning, and then but, of course it gets much more professional. But As but I would also uh, my recollection was Gregory Nava is uh, and Anna Thomas they were a husband and wife team that um, directed and produced each other's things where Anna would direct something and then Greg would direct something but they were the real deal just the same energy and brilliance that 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 Quentin projected and mm -hmm. the same en energy and brilliance that Damien Chazelle uh, projected. And it's interesting because um, you can look at El Norte that was done years ago. It, it, it's 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 a masterpiece. It's a great it's a great movie. Um, we're we're we've been doing a lot of uh, PR work recently because we're um, experiencing the 20th anniversary of Jackie Brown and the 25th anniversary of Reservoir Dogs. So we haven't looked at these movies in, in years, but we looked at them recently, and they're really good. And that's not always the case with a lot of movies. Like if you really go look at something from 1992, you know, what you know what was really great then and, uh, and, and well there's a timeless well, there's a, nature to yeah, yeah, Quentin's yeah. movies to yeah. West's movies I think yeah. even uh, La La Land's gonna have that too it is timeless. I think I think you'll be able to look at La La Land uh, 10 20 30 years from now and it'll be it'll stand on its own um, it's funny because El Norte is 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 very uh, uh, contemporary and it's and it's what it's saying right now what it's it's even more so than when it was made in 1983. Well, what are some of the benefits, I think you've discussed it just now, of working together and being a team? Well, I, I think, and I always say this, I always say this when I interview because it, it, it's true, <laughs> but I say that you're getting two production designers. Sandy, and, and, and often, sometimes I have to actually go in and sell this to the art department. For instance, I had a wonderful art department. I had a package of a fantastic art director and a, and a group of people in Toronto where we, did, um, where we did Aaron Sorkin's movie. And I had to say, okay, guys, uh, we're going to run it a little bit different in a sense that Sandy is going to have a little bit more of a voice than what would traditionally be allowed or, or that would traditionally come from a decorator. And sometimes it's hard for that to be comprehended because there's a kind of a, a decorum and a way of making a movie and you, you know, or a chain of command, whatever. But you are getting two designers because Sandy's, Sandy's, uh, we're, you know, our training is, my training is really not formally trained. I have, I have, you know, wonderful friends that are designers that have gone through uh, AFI and the production design department, and, you know, that are fantastic. I'm, I'm not formally trained, whereas Sandy is formally trained art history major and has that under her belt. So I use that. And I, so, so essentially she kind of steps in where my weak points are and then I have an ability to interface and communicate with people that I step in and help her with that. So we, it just is, it's, it's just a better thing. And also when you work together, um, when you're a team, whether you're a husband and wife, when you work together a lot, and some directors choose to work with some designers all the time, you know, and they have a string of, of projects together, it helps that you've worked together before because you just kind of know, you almost don't have to say certain things. You just know what the other person is going to recommend and think about and suggest and 
you just kind of, it just makes it, it better. And that's the case whether you're designing movies or, or you know, whatever business you're in. If, um, if there's ever conflict in an idea, how do you resolve that? Uh, I, I usually will, well, I'll, if I really want to dig my heels in, I do that. But it's, as I said, it's not just between me and Sandy. I often have then sort of between us, there is an art director or a supervising art director. And I'm, a, again, a big collaboration fan. Like I like to have, like in an art department, which is often a lot of people, I have like a open office environment where there's a kind of a bullpen area and there's open tables where uh, I, I like to actually have, whenever the director will come in and we have a meeting where we can talk about stuff, um, uh, I have the keys all surround and kind of listen to what we're all talking about. So everybody weighs in. So I, uh, so by building the art department, I, I actually go and search for top to bottom, really overqualified people in every position. And even I struggle to find like a fantastic production assistant or even an intern, somebody that is really, really great. And for instance, the production assistant that I have that I had on La La Land was like having another art director or at least an assistant art director. And I think that that he actually left the show with with that credit, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, but I like to say, OK, if there's the conflict, what is it? What do you guys think? What does everybody think? And then we take a a, a vote on it and we say, OK, you know, or for instance, like in Fifty Shades of Grey, where we had this really brilliant um, director who is basically an artist, an amazing artist, Sam Taylor Johnson. And then we had um, the woman that wrote the story that was also sort of the boss producer, and they just um, had different ideas about things. So we would have to get two different beds, you know, one that Sam would like, and then one that Erica would like, and then we would sort of like let them has, ha haggle it out, but um, whatever. So, uh, but uh, I'm proud of that. The look of that movie too. This is the first Fifty Shades of Grey, not the not the we all, we did not do the second or the third ones. Uh, Fifty Shades uh, Darker. Yeah, did not do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after working all of these years, what still excites you about going on to a movie? I, I, you know, I still, I still love interviewing, and I think that the other thing that is really great is, um, is that it's a business and an occupation where it's every single movie is completely, totally different, and you have, and and even if it's the same director, when you're working with the same director or producers that work together. It's a different, you're in a different office, you're in a different, and our, our, our job takes us out in the field a lot, which I think is a healthy thing when you're just not in one, under one roof all the time, you're all over the place, and I think, or, or you're in a different city, uh, or you're in a different country, and I think it's a really wonderful thing, and that's, that's what's exciting to me. But um, I get, I get, we get, with the risk of sounding kind of, picky or, or, or arrogant about it, we, we, we get excited when an interesting script comes our way. And, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like a big, splashy, you know, okay, win the Academy Award art direction thing. If it's a really interesting story, that's what excites me. And we do read things together. And sometimes there are things that Sandy, who, who is a lot better read than I am, but Sandy will think, see something in something that maybe I don't, but I have this gut ability to when I read something and I can see it in my mind. And I always often like to do it with um, like the first read and it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a director that is a big director or something and, um, and often is not. They're not unknowns. I mean, really, before um, La La Land, Damien did, Whiplash didn't even come out, and we didn't, nobody really knew who he was, and then Whiplash kind of came out while we were prepping it, and it became a, he became a bigger thing, but, um, 
that's what excites me is just uh, is getting is reading and it's just it's it's analog it's all fashion you get a paper script or you know now it gets sent digitally but you can read this thing that's typed out and and it's very interesting when you get and we still try to find whoever is the person that wrote the script is going to be the person that's going to direct it and that's not always the case we try to shy away from these tentpole things where there's you know eight different eight different writers and um, it's not not uh, of interest to us so it's exciting to um, find uh, a really good story to then think think about and I was going to ask you about winning the Oscar for La La Land do you feel that you know that was uh, was that your proudest work in a sense working on La La Land. I think we never we never worked for the awards, so it was really wonderful to get, you know, first just the bubble of conversation saying, oh, you might be up for this, and then, oh, you you got this nudge to the next step, and it was very exciting. It was well, never when, yeah, we, you know, really we've worked our... on a bunch of things where, you know, you, when you are working on something really pretty amazing, you can sort of sense it, and that was the case so with again, um, Pulp Fiction, you really knew that something was, was, was going on with that. And quite frankly, it's really weird because up until La La Land, a lot of people have thought that we already have had an Oscar, particularly for Pulp Fiction. And we, we have not. Um, we did get nominated for a BAFTA for, um, uh, for Inglorious Bastards. Uh, however, we did not win, but um, uh, it, it 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 wasn't something that we set out to it's do. It's magical to get it for La La Land. It was though, it in was a way, a, because it's it's a Hollywood movie. Yeah, and it, to have that you know beyond the stage, getting the statuette for a yeah. movie that yeah, it, it was based on a lot of films where you know like uh, yeah, what am I thinking? It was special. Movie? It was really special. Yeah. I mean, it started with, I mean, there was, there was magic from the very beginning when early on in prep, I know Damien had dinner with Gene Kelly's wife, who kind of gave him her blessing to, to you know, to, to, to take the baton or whatever you want to say. I know American in Paris and Singing in the Rain. Those yeah, were it was Gene Kelly's yeah, wife. Huge. Yeah. Yep. And they had, they had dinner one-on-one and they, she said, go for it. You know, and he, so we, we didn't like go, you know, set out to like win the Oscar, but it, it just became this really, really fantastic thing. Uh, it, it, you know, the, there were actually quite a few really great movies that it was actually a kind of a good year. There were quite a few really great movies and things that are the kind of movies that I'm, I was mentioning before that were kind of you know, script-driven, interesting stories that were not um, bullied around by big studios and, and uh, or tentpole kind of, kind of things. And that was, in, in, in a way, kind of neat. So uh, it was just really great. And we, uh, but it was our first experience to going through that. And it was, it was absolutely magical and totally weird and totally <laughs> surreal. And it was surre- made even more surreal by, you know, we, we, we are, asked to go up on stage and the people that are handing us the awards were the actors from Fifty Shades of Grey who we were pretty <laughs> friendly with Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan who you know it was kind of it just was absolutely surreal and so weird uh, and then I must say you know we were on stage when uh, accepting the best picture nomination with a whole group of people and everybody <laughs> said hey wait a minute you didn't win <laughs> We're like, what? What's going on? So it was. was It it was like you know. It was just. I don't think people will ever ever forget that year. It it was a weird, like like a weird year. You know, it was strange. But um, no, we're we're very lucky. We're very fortunate. And but it's a it's a you know it's a career of of you know a body of work that that I'm proud of and Sandy's proud of and we're. We're just very fortunate, and we're um, um, we're just very lucky. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. We'll see you next time.